if you love me, feed my sheep. That's what he told Peter. If you really love me, if a pastor really loves the Lord Jesus Christ, one expression of that love will come by feeding God's sheep. It's hard work. It's not easy. But it's an expression of love for the Savior. Because, you see, the Lord knows that if you want to have a true ministry of discipleship, it must be a ministry of teaching. Now, it may not be attractive to the multitude. The multitude wants to be entertained. They want to have their ears tickled. But if you want to do what the Lord wants you to do, you teach. Why? Because here's how it works. As I come and I open the Scriptures on Sunday morning, and you hear truth, then you have a decision about what you're going to do with that truth. And when you take God's truth and you obey what you know, you grow. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today's sermon is entitled, The Doubt Before the Feast. It is difficult enough to do the right thing when strangers don't believe in you, but when your own family doubts you, doubts your motives, and doubts your abilities, it has to be that much more difficult. Yet, that is what Jesus faced as he was commissioned to show the world the way of salvation. And yet his own brothers were doubting unbelievers at first, and that is what we are looking at today as we move into chapter 7 of our study in the Gospel of John. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he begins. Take your Bibles, please. Turn to John chapter 7. John 7. You know, I'm reminded over and over and over again as I read Scripture, study it, meditate upon it, how amazing the Bible is. And even those stories that are familiar to us, they never seem to grow old. Some of you were raised in church. You've been to church for years, decades. You've been to Sunday school. You've heard literally thousands of hours of Bible teaching. And yet those familiar stories never grow old, whether it's the historical account of Jonah and the great fish, Daniel in the lion's den, Noah in the ark, or Moses leading the people through the dry land there in the Red Sea, or Samson as he pushes down the great pillars. God over and over and over again delivers his people. But of all the historical records of great men and women in the Bible, time and time and time again, I am drawn back to the Acts of the Apostles. I became a believer when I was 18 years old, and I was absolutely amazed at these men, these apostles, who wouldn't give up, let up, back up, or quit up until the Lord took them up. They were committed, whatever the cost, to live for Jesus Christ, whatever the persecution. And it seemed that they were indestructible at times, and they really were, and you're indestructible too, until it's the day that God has appointed for you to die. It's appointed for a man to die once, and then comes the judgment, the Scripture says. James was beheaded. Peter was not. Why? I don't know. Except that it was God's time for James and not for Peter. So this morning, what we see in the Acts of the Apostles, we find first modeled in the life of Christ. He is on a divine timetable. There are some people who want to kill him, but they can't kill him until it's God's time for him to die. Follow along in your text, chapter 7, a new chapter this morning, beginning now in verse 1. And after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may behold your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. 
If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers were believing in him. Jesus therefore said to them, My time is not yet at hand, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not, do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. And having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as it were, in secret. The Jews, therefore, were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? And there was much grumbling among the multitudes concerning him. Some were saying, he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the multitudes astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. Now, as you read chapter 7 over and over and over again, you're going to find that there are three centers of opposition that the Lord encounters, which will be the focus of the next three messages. First, there's the animosity that comes from his own family in the first 13 verses. Then there's the arguments that come from the Jewish leaders in verses 14 through uh, really 34. And then there's the angry reaction of the multitude that comes in the rest of the chapter. And among these three centers of opposition, the Lord is going to make an appeal to each group of individuals. In fact, the three centers of hostility center around three centers of time. Now, we're told in verse 2 that this whole event took place during the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And so the chapter unfolds first in the events that lead up to the feast, then the events that take place during the feast, then that final group, it happens on the last day of the feast, at the end of the feast. So this morning, we just want to look at the events that lead up to the feast. Now, don't forget the, the context of this chapter in the broader scheme of the, of the Gospel of John. If you remember in chapter 6, he performed the miracle after he had fed 5,000 households, about 20,000 people. And after he did that wonderful miracle, he gave a sermon interpreting the significance of it. And when he did, they left him in droves. Now, don't forget that the sixth chapter, we're told, begins with a great sense of enthusiasm. They are very excited about the Lord. And when he feeds 20,000, they love him all the more. They want to make him king. Again, their motives are all wrong. He is king, king of kings, lord of lords. But they want to make him a king for their own selfish reasons. And so we come almost to a footnote in chapter 6 and verse 59. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. It's a very important note. It's not just filler. There's no filler in the Bible. It's an important note because it was at this point that there was a turn in our Lord's public ministry. The hostility that had been brewing and, and simmering is about ready to break open with an intense hatred for him. Now put yourself also in the geographical con context of this passage. You know, as you read the Bible, it's helpful to use those maps in the back of your Bible. Because it will help you to see where you are in the narrative and it will really make it that much more meaningful to you. Um, if you remember, Israel can be broken up into a number of counties, as it were. Out there on the left side of a map of Israel, of course, you have the sea, the Mediterranean Sea. And the action of John's gospel takes place in basically three regions. In the south, you have a place called Judea, where you find cities like Jerusalem and Bethany and Bethlehem. 
You go north of that and you come into Samaria. And there's only one chapter in the whole Gospel of John that focuses in Samaria. Now there's other activities that happen there as the other Gospels record, but John's writing for a different purpose and he only highlights one particular day in the life of Christ in John 4 when he meets the woman at the well. You go north of that and you come into Galilee. And we've been in the north since chapter 5 when our Lord healed the nobleman's son, when he uh, took the paralytic there at the pool of Bethesda and allowed him to walk once again, when he fed the 5,000, when he walked in the water, and then he delivered the bread of life discourse. So they're up in the north, but now they're heading south again. Luke tells us when they come into Samaria, that's where they encounter some difficulty. And some of the disciples said, Lord, should we ask fire to come down from heaven and destroy all these folks. <laughs> well, eventually they get into the south, into the city of Jerusalem. And we're going to see in the next two chapters that the smoldering hate whose seeds were planted in chapter 2 that began to build up into chapter 5 is going to break out into high open hostility. Now, there's not a lot of doctrinal content to these first 13 introductory verses, but they set the stage and of course, they're here for a reason. And if you can understand and pay attention closely this morning to the first 13 verses, the rest of the chapter is going to open up to you and I believe be a great encouragement to you today. Now, let's just get a reminder here of where this is heading. If you want to know where chapters 7 and 8 are going, just look at the very last verse at the end of chapter 8. They picked up stones to stone him. The next two chapters are going to culminate in mob violence with a desire to knock off the Lord. And again, he's making some incredible claims, some claims that demand a decision from men. He confronts men with himself, and he's no different today. He says, this is who I am. What are you going to do with me? And some respond for good, and some respond with evil. Now, the first 13 verses records, again, the setting, those events that lead up to the Feast of Tabernacles. And it is at this feast that the events of chapters 7 and 8 take place. It will be the next Passover that the Lord is crucified. So we're coming here into chapter 7. We're going to see in a moment there's a gap of time between chapter 6 and chapter 7. You come into verse 2, you're identified that you're in the time frame of the Feast of Booths. And six months later, he's going to go to his last Passover where he becomes the Passover lamb and he's crucified. So he's on a divine schedule. Now, again, we've broken down the chapter according to the three groups of hostility, according to the three time frames that you find it. Today, we want to look at the first 13 verses, and I've entitled this sermon, The Doubt Before the Feast. Next time, we'll look at verses 14 to 34, where we'll deal with the debate in the middle of the feast. And then when we come three weeks from today to the final section, we'll look at the division on the last day of the feast. So let's begin by thinking this morning about the doubt before the feast. First, the setting for this doubt. Notice how verse 1 begins. And after these things... Now, we've seen John already use this phrase, after these things, not always to establish a tight connection of time, but just sequence. In other words, after the events of chapter 6, the bread of life discourse, sometime after, in fact, you say, how long after? Well, chapter 6 and verse 4 opens that the event of the feeding of the 20,000 and the bread of life discourse took place when the Passover of the Jews was at hand. 
But when we come to verse 2 of this chapter, we find that they're, in the, they're going to approach the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. So between Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles, there's seven months. So verse 1 takes place in the course of a seven-month time period. And after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee. Now, the other Gospels fill in the details of these seven months, and they're not recorded here. If you read them, you'd discover that he went north towards the Phoenician border. He went south into Decapolis, Deca, Ten, Polis, into ten small little villages where he preached. But for the most part, he was not in any major populated areas. For seven months, he, he did a few miracles, not that many. He taught in a few small towns. He confronted the religious leaders of the day. It was during this seventh-month time frame that the Jewish leaders determined that what Jesus does, he does by the power of the devil. And they commit the unpardonable sin, what the Bible calls blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. All manner of sin God can forgive. And sometimes we need to emphasize that side of the verse in Matthew. God can forgive any kind of sin. But there is one sin that is an unforgivable sin, and it is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Because when you close out, the only one who can open your eyes to truth, you've committed an unpardonable sin. You have shut yourself off from God so that you cannot believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. And so he does some teaching, does some miracles, but the vast bulk of the time, as you study the synoptics carefully, is alone with the 12 disciples. And he does basically three major things with them. One, he teaches them the scriptures. He gives them truth out of his own lips. Secondly, he begins to prepare them for his own rejection and crucifixion that they won't understand at first, but in hindsight they will understand. And third, he'll take at least three of them to the Mount of Transfiguration, where they get a glimpse of the coming kingdom, a glimpse of his own glory. But the bulk of the time is building and teaching these 12 men. Now think about it. The Bread of Life discourse took place in the course of two days. The events of chapter 6 took place over two days where he spent some time with 20,000 people. You would have thought, man, if you've got seven months, go where the big crowds are, try to build into thousands of people all at once. But he doesn't do that. It's the training of the 12. It's the focus on these 12. Because he knew that these 12, with the exception, of course, of Judas, had a heart to hear truth. Now, please understand, foundational to the discipleship ministry of Jesus Christ was a ministry of teaching. That's why in his command, as he gave us the Great Commission, to go and make disciples, baptizing them, he said, teaching them all that I taught you to observe. And so I come here on Sunday morning not to entertain you, but to teach you and to teach myself because that's what the Lord gave us in the Great Commission. That's what you see modeled through pastors in the Acts of the Apostles. That's what you find commanded of pastors in the epistles. Jesus said to those pastors, if you love me, feed my sheep. That's what he told Peter. If you really love me, if a pastor really loves the Lord Jesus Christ, one expression of that love will come by feeding God's sheep. It's hard work, it's not easy, but it's an expression of love for the Savior because, you see, the Lord knows that if you want to have a true ministry of discipleship, it must be a ministry of teaching. Now, it may not be attractive to the multitude. The multitude wants to be entertained. They want to have their ears tickled. But if you want to do what the Lord wants you to do, you teach. Why? Because here's how it works. As I come and I open the scriptures on Sunday morning, and you hear truth, 
then you have a decision about what you're going to do with that truth. And when you take God's truth and you obey what you know, you grow. You hear truth, you apply it, assuming you've had a spiritual birth because you can't grow if you've not been born again. But when you obey what you know, you grow. And as you grow, what happens? You mature in Jesus Christ. Why? Because as you grow in the Lord, that birthday present that God gave you on your spiritual birthday called a spiritual gift begins to manifest itself. And as you, has a, as you have a congregation of growing people who begin to find a place of service, according to the working of each individual part, we grow up into the fullness of Christ. We grow up into maturity in Him. And so this seven-month hiatus, as it were, between chapters 6 in chapter 7 and verse 2, teaches us a very important lesson. That you cannot measure the worth of a ministry by how many people you jam into a building. It can only be measured by discipleship. And discipleship is not just feeding people and entertaining people, it's teaching people. Oh, when he fed them, the mobs came. Entertainment, it was the best. Nobody had seen these kinds of miracles before. But when he began to teach them, they abandoned him in droves. No problem in generating a crowd if you don't want to teach the whole counsel of God. But if you want to teach all that I commanded you that came from his lips or what would come ultimately through the apostles' pens, then it is another story. So God calls us to teach the word. That's the first line of discipleship. It begins, of course, in our own homes. There may be some bumps in the road, but God calls you to teach your children. That's where it begins. And then it begins out in the world. There will be people that we will reach. And this is one of the reasons I'm so excited about this children's conference, because I believe it's going to help us reach children in this county who do not go to church. You know, I hope you know that the vast majority of this county, well over two-thirds, are not in church today. This is an unchurched county. Two-thirds of the children in America, according to Barna Research Group, will not go to church this year. Most children no longer attend church. Everything has changed in America. And so we need to disciple people, beginning in our own home, with those God will entrust to us. You say, well, pastor, I really can't disciple anyone because I'm not perfect. Listen, if you're going to wait till you reach a certain level of maturity, number one, you'll never mature. If you wait until you get, quote, unquote, perfect, you're going to have to wait until the rapture, and then it will be too late. You won't be able to disciple anyone. No, you begin as God gives you the opportunity. It's not an issue of perfection. It's an issue of direction. What direction are you going in this morning? You need to ask yourself the question, do I have a growing relationship with the Lord? And if God wants to reproduce His life through me, is your life worth reproducing? After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee. For he was unwilling in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. There's a contract on his life. They want to take him out. But being on a divine schedule, they can't do it. Because no one will take his life away, he will give it. Verse 2. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths was at hand. There are six feasts that God prescribed in the Old Testament. A seventh that came about as a result of the deliverance that God provided through Esther in eighth that came between the two testaments called Hanukkah or the Feast of Lights that we're going to see mentioned here in the Gospel of John. But of those six feasts that God prescribed, three of them were commanded for every Jew to celebrate once a year. 
The first was Passover, the second was Pentecost, and the third was Tabernacles that came in the September-October time frame. And each feast was to remember how God had provided and taken care of their forefathers. He established very certain feasts so that they would never, ever forget what God had done. But not only did these feasts look back, they looked ahead because each of these six feasts pictured both the first and second comings of Christ. And we'll begin to see that as we come to the end of this chapter as it relates to this feast. And so since our Lord kept the law, he came under the law, obeyed the law, he's going to go to the feast. It's a time of thanksgiving as they remember the harvest. And so it's also called in the Bible, the feast of ingathering. It was a time of celebration, much like our Thanksgiving. But it was also a time to remember the wilderness wanderings as God provided, as God gave them a reminder that He is a faithful God, and as He could provide for that generation, He can provide for this generation. So how did they remember it? Well, they remembered it through the Feast of Booths. You might want to put out next to verse 2, Leviticus 23. Leviticus 23. From the 15th to the 21st, of the month of Tishri. You say, what is Tishri? Tishri was the Jewish month that would correspond to our September slash October. Our calendar does not perfectly correlate with the Jewish calendar. Why? Because they followed a lunar calendar. We follow the Roman calendar. Now, sometimes in the church, we follow the lunar calendar. Every year, someone asks me, every year, someone asks me, why is Easter not always on the same day? Well, because we're following the lunar calendar like the Jews. And so we're in the time frame of September, October. And this event that takes place, they were to build booths. You know, when we were kids, we used to go to this forest near our home. It was called Pine Forest. And it was about a mile walk. Me and my brothers used to love to go. And we would build lean-tos. You'd take some fork sticks and you'd create a, a roof. And you'd have this lean-to. And we'd camp out overnight under our lean-to. Very similar to what they were doing. Josephus tells us that they'd come in from all over Palestine, from outside of Palestine, and they would come into Jerusalem, and there in the streets, in the center of town and along the pathways, they would build these booths. If you lived in the town, you'd put it in your courtyard or in these flat roofs. They'd put some of them up there on the building. Now, someone may want to help that dear lady and show her where our nursery is because she may not be aware of it, all right? Now, listen to me. <laughs> They're building these booths, and they're living in these booths. Why are they living? Look up here. Look over here. They're living in these booths to remember God's faithfulness to his people as a nation. They're commemorating that God is a faithful God. And one of the things that they do is they have this torchlight procession. Why? Because it was a reminder of how God led them with a pillar of fire by night. And when they come to the last day of the feast, they would go to the pool of Siloam and they would pour out barrels and barrels of water on the ground, a double portion on the last day, because it was to remind them of how God provided for them from the rock. And of course, Jesus, before we're done in this chapter, is going to show how that pointed to him. Now, that's the setting for this doubt. That's important. Secondly, not only the setting for the doubt, I want you to consider this morning the brothers who do doubt. Look at verse 3. We're told, his brothers therefore said to him. Now, Matthew 1 and verse 25 tells us that Joseph kept Mary a virgin until she gave birth to the Lord Jesus. Until implies they had normal marital relations after the Lord Jesus was born. 
Luke chapter 2 and verse 7 speaks of the fact that Jesus was Mary's firstborn. Implication, she had other children. By the way, these brothers in this verse are never called cousins, as some who wanted to defend the perpetual virginity of Mary say. These were Jesus' real brothers. He had other brothers and sisters. Now, they were half-brothers because they were the sons of both Mary and Joseph. Whereas the Lord Jesus was just the son of Mary, he was conceived and sired by God the Holy Spirit. Now, there was never a time when he was not, but there was a time when he did not have a human body. And that's the role that the Spirit of God supernaturally, miraculously, mysteriously, mystically played as he brought into one person, someone who is fully God and fully man. He's not half God, he's not half man, he's not all God and no man, he's not all man and no God. He's the God-man inseparably brought together into one person, much different from his other brothers. In fact, the other brothers are named in Scripture. You might want to put in the margin next to this verse, Matthew 13, 55. On another occasion, when they're really attacking the Lord, they said, is this... The carpenter's son? Is not this the carpenter's son? Well, they were wrong on that note because he wasn't. He was the son of God. Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? So he had brothers. The four of them are named. He has sisters. They're unnamed. It's in the plural, so he had at least two. So we know that the Lord grew up in a family of at least seven children. Now, when you come down to verse 5, John is going to point out that these brothers are unbelievers. On another occasion, when Jesus is bringing together this huge multitude of people, his own people are going to come, his, his family, and they're going to conclude that Jesus is out of his mind. And so these unbelieving brothers are going to give the Lord some advice. Now, it's going to change. They're going to come to faith. In fact, one of them is going to write the epistle of James, and another brother is going to write the epistle of Jude. But we read in verse 3, His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may behold your works which you are doing. Don't waste your time out here, Jesus, in the sticks. Forget the countryside. Go up to the Feast of Tabernacles. If you are really interested in religious prominence, go where the people are. Go to the capital city, the center of our religion, and prove yourself. They say in verse 4, For no one does anything in secret. When he himself seeks to be known publicly, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. What are they saying? They're saying, if you are the Messiah of the nation, if you are going to advance your cause, you need to go to the center. Forget this stuff out here in the villages and in the sticks. Go up there into the center of religion. Now, his brothers, by the way, were absolutely right. If you want to promote yourself, you go where the crowd is. But they're operating from a worldly point of view. What were their motives? Well, there's a lot of uh, speculation over this. Some people think that they just had this impatient zeal for the Lord Jesus to show His glory, to bring in the kingdom. Maybe they'd have a key role in it. No, clearly not. Verse 5 indicates at this point they're still unbelievers. Others argue that there is a malignant hatred in their hearts. And they knew that if he went up to Jerusalem and manifested himself with miracles, that the religious leaders would get all bent out of shape and that they'd kill him. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program John 
0-1-1-0-2-1. Don't forget that if you have missed any part of our series in John, you can download the Search the Scriptures app found in the iTunes and Google Play Store. You can also listen online at searchthescriptures.org or request a hard copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to Search the Scriptures.